Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Should an innocent man be condemned to death? On the other hand, should the guilty go free? After 38 years of being held behind bars, having been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for murder and two attempted murders in 1988, Maurice Hastings, at 69 years old, was released from a California state prison last Friday after new DNA evidence pointed to a different person for the crimes. 38 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. Hastings said at a news conference, I prayed for many years that this day would come. I'm not pointing any fingers. I'm not standing up here a bitter man, but I just want to enjoy my life now while I still have it. District Attorney George Gascon responded in a statement, the justice system is not perfect. And when we learn of new evidence which causes us to lose confidence in a conviction, it is our obligation to act swiftly. The system failed you. The system failed the victims. The answers to the questions, should an innocent man be condemned to death, should the guilty be rewarded life and freedom, is certainly no and a no. Yet just as in the story I shared of Maurice Hastings in our passage this afternoon, an innocent man was condemned to death. Only unlike Maurice Hastings, the man in our passage isn't proved innocent by DNA evidence 38 years later. The man in our passage is proved innocent by undeniable evidence only three days later. Our passage tells us of an unprecedented story of how an innocent man condemned rewarded life and freedom to the guilty. We're continuing our study through the gospel according to John in our series, In the Beginning Was the Word. And this fall, we're looking to conclude our series, Part 3, Sufferings and Glory, looking at chapters 18 through 21. Our passage today shows us the events which occurred during the interval between the formal verdict of acquittal in John 18.38 when Pilate determined for the first time, I find no guilt in him, and the execution of Jesus in the passage following in John chapter 19, verses 17 through 37. And in this interval, what we see is a series of attempts by Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, in a war of conscience, attempting to escape the Jewish leader's demands to crucify Jesus, because he was convinced that Jesus was indeed innocent of the charges brought by the Jewish leaders. But in this passage is a deeper, greater lesson. As the passage progresses, what we see more and more is the sinful depravity of the human heart. And at the same time, we see the unfolding of God's unique plan of redemption through Jesus's crucifixion. Most specifically, what we learn from this passage is a side of Jesus. We at times have a difficulty understanding perhaps a side of when we often neglect or ignore or undermine. When we think of Jesus, we think of him as loving and powerful and glorious. But not too often do we see him in these ways. Or perhaps we pass over these details too quickly. The fact of the matter is, Jesus is truly God, yet truly man. And this passage shows us a clearer picture of who Jesus is in his entirety. So from John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16, I want to share with you three truths of Jesus we often undermine, 
Three truths of Jesus we often undermine. Here's the outline so you know what's coming. Point number one, Jesus is the man who was sinless. From verses one through five. Jesus is the man who was sinless. Point number two, Jesus is the son of God who was delivered. From verses six through 11. Jesus is the son of God who was delivered. And point number three, Jesus is the eternal king who was rejected from verses 12 through 16. Jesus is the man who was sinless. Jesus is the son of God who was delivered. Jesus is the eternal king who was rejected. Brothers and sisters, I pray that this message will remind you anew that Jesus, the humble king, is worthy of all glory and our worship because he endured the wretchedness of our sins on our behalf. Because he came to live and die and rise again, we have new and abundant life and eternal life. Amen? If you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, we're so happy that you are here. Welcome to our service. There's no better place for you to be on a Sunday afternoon under God's word with God's people. And we have good news for you. Unlike every other religion that tells you to do better or try harder and work yourself way to perfection in order to get to heaven, the God of the Bible says the perfect Son of God came to us in order that we can have a way to heaven. Through Jesus, friend, God has made a way for you and me to himself, to heaven, to life, and to freedom. So we pray that you will hear his words and see Jesus for who he truly is. Let's turn now then to his words, John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16, which can be found on page 905 of the Blue Bibles around you. If you are new to the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. So John chapter 19 verses 1 through 16. In fact, if you do not have a Bible to read at home, we encourage you to take one of those blue Bibles with you as a gift from us so that you can read and study God's Word at home. Also, as you listen, I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open throughout the entire duration of the message and follow along as I read and preach to help you better understand God's Word and also so you won't get bored. John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16 says this. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail the king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. 
They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Who is Jesus? Point number one, Jesus is the man who was sinless. From verses one through five. Look with me to verses one through four. Again, it says this. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail the king of the Jews and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. The first observation we can make from the passage is that this is a really hard passage to read and think about if you really are able to grasp what's going on. If I can confess to you this week as I was preparing this sermon, I mean, what do you do with the emotions that you feel from this text? In prayer, I just sat and cried and lamented over the sin and the depravity of humanity. For some of you, it may be hard to connect to it initially because it's so highly graphic and emotive in nature. To read about a man being flogged and tortured is not a scene any of us enjoys dwelling on at all. But today's passage and next week's passage on the crucifixion forces us, forces us to deal with it, to not ignore it, to not minimize it, to not turn our heads away from it, which is one of the reasons why we are committed as a church to expositional preaching and to preaching the whole counsel of God, book by book, verse by verse. We don't want to pick and choose what's preached from this pulpit. We want the Word of God to speak to us and teach us holistically. So when Scripture confronts us face to face, the ugly side of human depravity and the tragedy which preceded victory, we ought to carefully and wisely listen and think so that God can teach us the necessary lessons we need to learn. So, if you understood the cultural context of the day and what flogging involved, it's sheer brutality. It may help you grasp what's going on, so allow me to explain just in brief what flogging in their day involved, how it involved the Roman soldiers, not one, but a number of them, with whips, long, wet strips of leather for it to stick to the skin, with bones and metals, pieces and fragments attached to the end of these strips, as to literally make the backs of the victims into strips of mutilated flesh, ripping their backs, often exposing their insides and bones, leaving them so disfigured and marred, barely hanging on to life, nearly dead. In fact, many of the victims would not be able to survive these floggings. That's what flogging entailed. And we see that was just one aspect of the torture they put Jesus through. We haven't even seen the worst of it all yet. But think about this. Did you feel any sort of anger or any sense of frustration when I told you that Maurice Hastings was in jail for 38 years for a crime he didn't commit? 38 years wasted for a crime he did not commit. Well, in the case of Jesus, it was clear to Pilate and to anyone who had any reasonable sense. I mean, they all saw Jesus' works, how he healed the sick, how he gave sight to the blind, how he commanded a lame man to walk, and he actually did how he quelled the storms, 
how he brought back a dead man to life. They all heard Jesus' words. They all heard how he spoke with unrivaled authority, as if spoken from a man the very words of God. It was clear by all accounts that Jesus was innocent. And hence, in verse 4, Pilate repeats his verdict for the second time. See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. That Jesus was innocent, was indisputable. No crime had been proven against him. So if any suspicions or any of you think or any of us think in some twisted way that Jesus deserved crucifixion for inciting an insurrection or low-key provoking religious leaders to anger, may it be clear, may you be clear of one thing, Jesus was innocent of the crimes that he was accused of. It was the verdict of all who had dealings with him in these final hours that Jesus was indeed innocent. First, Judas, the betrayer himself, after realizing what he has done before he hung himself in shame and guilt, had declared in Matthew 27, 4, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Second, Pilate's wife had sent to Pilate in Matthew 27, 19, Don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in my dreams because of him. Third, Pilate himself declared Christ's innocence. I find no basis for charges against him. John 18, 38. And he will say it at least two more times. Fourth, Herod the ruler of Galilee, though not recorded in John's account, but in Luke's account, also determines Jesus' innocence. When Pilate, in this difficult dilemma, pressed between his own conscience, yet pressed politically by the Jewish leaders, he ropes in Herod into the situation. And in Luke 23, verse 15, Pilate also reports Herod's verdict. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. And you will see in the course of the narrative, more witnesses coming forth to testify of Jesus' innocence. Yet what is this injustice? That an innocent man is tortured and flogged and struck and mocked with a crown of thorns forced into his forehead and a purple robe thrown over his bleeding, lacerated flesh. We learn of Pilate's intention. Verse 4 and 5 shows us that by scourging Jesus to a near pulp, he wished to show just how powerless and weak and unimpressively human Jesus was to perhaps evoke pity among the crowd and spare him of crucifixion. Pilate brings out Jesus ridiculing him as some carnival king, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and says to them, Behold, the man. And what a pitiful and sorry sight this scene would have been if Jesus was not ironically the man. For who had been born and come into this world for this very purpose. You see, over 700 years before Jesus was even born, it was written of him in Isaiah 53, verse 3, that Jesus would be the man despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says this, A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Behold the man, Jesus Christ, the man, the Word incarnate, the Word of God become flesh who dwelt among us, according to John chapter 1, verse 14. 
Behold the man whom the Apostle Paul would write of him. The last Adam or the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 45 through 49. Write this passage down and reflect on it later this week. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 45 through 49. It says this. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is, that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Behold the man who was not only the innocent man of his charges, but the only man who's ever lived who was sinless, entirely blameless. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So not only was Jesus innocent, he was entirely sinless. Behold the man, as Traven Wax writes, On a Friday morning 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood before the people, and Pilate declared, Behold the man. It was the sixth day of the week and the day God created man, and now the second Adam was undoing the first Adam's sin. Adam was always meant to wear the crown. Now Jesus would wear one. Adam had been sentenced to toil among the thorns. Now Jesus would have those thorns twisted into his brow. Adam was ashamed of his failure and sought to hide behind fig leaves. Now Jesus would wear the purple robe and hear the taunts of the mockers. The hands of humanity that reached out for the forbidden fruit were the fist that beat the face of the precious Savior. Behold, the man Pilate didn't know what he was saying, but John the Apostle did. Jesus is the perfect man, the image of the invisible God, the beginning and the end, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, the one who shows us what God always intended humanity to be like. He is the one who takes the shame of our sin and bears the mockery of evil. As the second Adam, Jesus fulfills our purpose. Just look at how the Jewish leaders seek to crucify him according to their law. God sentenced to death the sons of Adam for believing the lie of the serpent. But here the sons of Adam sentenced to death the son of God who tells the truth. They had it backwards. This is not just a man who had made himself to be the son of God. This is the son of God who has made himself man. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you understand the reality of Jesus becoming the man for us. Other religions reject the idea that God would become man. They see it as preposterous that a holy, divine, eternal being would debase himself as a lowly human being. But the fact that we are talking about it proves its validity because man could not have made this stuff up, you see. Recall one religion, one religion other than Christianity that claims these unimaginable, unfathomable truths that God became man is unthinkable to the natural mind. That is why Christianity is not man-made. It is the good news of God. Dear beloved church family, how often do we realize the depths of our depravity? That Jesus had to empty himself of his glory by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
according to Philippians 2 verses 6 through 8. How should this reality humble us when we face difficult trials and sufferings in this life? Particularly when we feel wronged and misunderstood and rejected and alone, tempted to justify ourselves. Scripture says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. How should Jesus' humanity challenge us and ground us, especially with those whom God has put in close proximity to us? Family members, friends, spouses, children, church members, when we are in conflict with them, that we ought to lower ourselves, that we ought to die to ourselves, that we ought to let God be our justification. Amen? Behold the man. See Jesus for who he is. He was not a mere man, but a great man. A man one of a kind who's ever walked on earth, which is the reason why history sees him as the most significant person in all of history. Behold the man. It is through this man that we will one day be able to behold God face to face when our faith will turn to sight. Amen? Point number two, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God who was delivered from verses 6 through 11. Look with me to verse 6 again. It says this, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Here in these verses, the maddening cries of the Jewish leaders, thirst for blood intensifies. Crucify! Crucify! Like a child who doesn't get his way throwing a tantrum for fear that they would not get what they want, the chief priest and the officer starts crying out, starts shouting. And that's why in second part of verse 6, a seeming redundant response by Pilate. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate was saying, you came to me for judgment, and I gave you a verdict. But you're not listening. You don't want what I judge, what I determine. So that's why he was saying, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jewish leader's response in verse 7 is fascinating. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Again, these conversations seem redundant. They're going back and forth in a war of consciences and wills. But did you notice how their response has changed? Back in John 18, verse 31, they had said to Pilate, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. But now, they're saying they do have a law. That a man ought to die when he claims himself to be God. As I shared last Sunday, they were referencing Leviticus 24, 16. But notice how they twist and pervert the words of God to fit their own, just like the serpent did in the garden in Genesis. You see, blasphemy is a sin that is showing irreverence or great disrespect and dishonor to God or claiming validity to something that is not in agreement with the words of Scripture. Jesus never did such a thing. Jesus never committed blasphemy. Jesus never made Himself the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Blasphemy was their interpretation. What Jesus claimed was the truth. Of all the charges brought against Jesus, according to Matthew, Luke, and John's accounts during the trials, that Jesus was the Son of God, that was the central charge, you see. 
And Pilate had already determined that Jesus was not guilty of any of these charges the first time. Look at Luke chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. But the second time the charge is made, it hit Pilate differently. It says in verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Think about that for a second. Why was Pilate even more afraid? Even more afraid. Who or what was Pilate afraid of? We're not given an answer, and postulating can only lead us so far. Perhaps he was even more afraid of taking the responsibility for the death of an innocent man. Perhaps even, uh, he was even more afraid seeking the religious, uh, seeing the religious leader's bullheadedness, wanting to see Jesus killed. I am less convinced that Pilate actually considered that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, and therefore he was even more afraid. But in all of this story's irony, the truth, they were attempting to kill the Son of God by their own hands. As Pilate continued to wrestle with his conscience about what was it that he was supposed to do, as it says in verse 9, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Again, seemingly redundant question. We are confronted also with this question. We should carefully think about this question. Where is Jesus from? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Especially if you are here and you are not a Christian, this question is of the utmost importance to you. It's in fact a question that every single one of us should answer at some point in our lives, at some point or another. Because Jesus is inescapable, you see. You have heard the name Jesus many times in your life. He is the center of human history, B.C. and A.D. He is the leader of the world's largest religion. His teachings are the root of every hotly debated topic in our generation, in every generation. He is the man whose birthday is the biggest celebrated bash all around the globe every year. Who is Jesus? Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph Smith, Confucius does not even nearly compare. So brothers and sisters, who do you say Jesus is? Where do you say that Jesus came from? Whatever your trial or struggle or conflict may be, the answer to that very question will transform your mind and the trajectory of your life. Let me say that again. Whatever your trial or struggle or conflict may be, the answer to the question, who is Jesus and where did he come from, will transform your mind and the trajectory of your life. Is he merely a man or the man? Is he merely a political rebel or is he indeed the son of God? I love Jesus' response to Pilate's question, where are you from in verse 9? Jesus gave him no answer. First of all, Jesus already told him in verse 37 that he is from heaven. Jesus need not to repeat himself to calm Pilate's conscience, you see. Furthermore, after Jesus took such scourging, many words are not necessary. But more biblical, more theological, more significant reason is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7, which said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Of course, that he was silent doesn't denote that Jesus did not speak at all. In the verses before and in the verses following, Jesus does answer. But his speaking was never to defend himself, you see, from their accusations. It was only to speak truth. 
Do you realize how unusual this scene is? Anyone who's put on trial for crimes they did not commit would be fighting for their freedom, would be defending their freedom. That's what Maurice Hastings did. Apply and reapply and reapply and reapply for an appeal to prove his innocence. Jesus never did such a thing. Jesus let the words of God speak for itself. Jesus let the will of God show itself. Jesus stood silent. Look at verses 10 through 11. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And authority to crucify you? And here we see Jesus answering, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. I love this ironic tension. Even as Pilate claims authority, it's clear he actually has no authority whatsoever over this situation. He's practically begging Jesus to fight for himself, to defend himself, because he was lost to, to what he was supposed to do. Will you not speak to me? They are the words of an insecurely prideful man who is attempting to hold on to even an ounce of dignity as he's getting bulldozed by everyone around him. But Jesus reminds him, doesn't he? This is not about you. This is not about you, Pilate. Look at verse 11 again. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus clarifies everything that was happening is within God's will. That it was written. That it would be fulfilled. That God's divine plan of redemption for salvation of God's people would come to pass. It was written of him again hundreds of years before Jesus was born. In Isaiah 50 verses 5 through 6, the sovereign Lord has opened my eyes. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And the greatest mystery revealed to us, fulfilled in Christ for our humbling and for our endless comfort, Isaiah 53.10, which says, Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. These words were speaking of Jesus the promised Messiah, how the Son of God would be delivered over to sinful men. Just one more note we must address in verse 11. Who is being referred to? Who delivered Jesus to Pilate who has the greater sin? It could be a complexing thought initially. We're thinking, okay, God has the authority, but who is he who delivered Jesus who has the greater sin? Can't be God because God can't sin. That's what scripture says. So who is it? Who has the greater sin? Theologians debate. Is it the Jewish leaders? Then why is he singular, as Evan asked yesterday at EMP? Is it Judas? Is it Caiaphas, the high priest? Most likely the singular form points to Caiaphas as the representative of the Jewish people who knew God's word, yet rejected it. Who knew God's truth, yet suppressed it. Who had God's word, yet ignored it who read God's word, yet neglected it. Those who knew the greater truth, yet ignores it, rejects it, perverts it, excuses it, neglects it, has the greater sin. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' words to Pilate speaks to you and me today. May it bring conviction, who like the Pharisees, claim the benefits of God's promises, yet rejects his word, yet rejects his truth. 
for anyone who says they are not complicit, they are not responsible for the death of Jesus. Perhaps not in theology, perhaps not in head knowledge, but in functional practicality, in the way you live your life as a hypocrite, in the way you neglect your spiritual life as a religious Pharisee. You can claim innocence all you want to, who think, well, I'm not as bad as those worst sinners. Jesus is speaking to you. Jesus is speaking to me. For your sake, Jesus was tried. For my sake, Jesus was crucified. For our sake, Jesus died. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, for anyone pointing fingers at those prideful, stubborn Pharisees who are so set on killing Jesus in the worst way possible, realize they are a picture of all humankind, including you and me, who would go to such lengths of depravity and sin to secure ourselves innocence when we are the ones who are guilty. Every single day when we reject the Son of God by rebelling against His will, against His word, against His way. Brother and sister, is this true of you? How are you responsible for crucifying Jesus by making light of His sacrifice on your behalf? Are you continuing in sin? Are you continuing in your deliberate disobedience? Are you continuing in your minimizing and undermining and neglecting Jesus' death on your behalf? I want to invite you. The Word invites you. Come to Him in repentance. Come to Him in humble gratitude. Come to Him in surrender. Behold, the Son of God delivered for you. Which leads us to our final point. Point number three. Jesus is the eternal king who was rejected. Jesus was the eternal king who was rejected from verses 12 through 16. Look at verses 12 to 13 again. It says this. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. It was apparent that the Jewish leaders would not bend, that they would not compromise. They were now pitting Pilate against Caesar, making him an enemy of Caesar. And so fearing for the security of his post, or perhaps even his own life, though less likely, Pilate succumbs in verse 13. Pilate, sitting on the judgment seat, symbolizes the final verdict. We can talk more about Pilate's failed efforts and how he tries so hard to defer responsibility. But for time's sake, what is clear and the lesson we can learn from Pilate is, if you lack clarity on what is truth, you lack certainty in everything. If you lack clarity on what is truth, you lack certainty in everything else. If you don't know truth, you succumb to lies. Jesus is the truth. The Word of God is truth. There is no other truth. As we conclude, look at the final verses of our passage. Uh, look at the first part of verse 14. It says, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. John, the author John, is clearly setting up the scene repeatedly so that you won't miss it. He says, It was the day of preparation for Passover. If you're confused about the dating, you can understand that the Passover celebration lasted an entire week. So don't get confused about the exact dates or the day of the week or whatever. And the sixth hour would land us around noontime on Friday. John's intent and symbolism is very purposeful. The preparation of the Passover was the time when hundreds of lambs would be slaughtered in preparation for the Passover meal. 
John intends us to see that Jesus is the Passover lamb being led to slaughter. And again, the great irony, Pilate says to Jesus and to all, behold your king. And the response of the crowd is one that is upsetting and utterly sickening. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Do you see what they're doing? Do you see what they are saying? In order to get their way, in order to protect their self-interests, they themselves become the object of their hate. They themselves become guilty of the accusation they bring forth on Jesus. In other words, they show their true colors. They show themselves what was in their hearts in the most wretched, ugly form. They show themselves to be godless. They show themselves to be their own gods. They are the ones who are blasphemers, you see. The very leaders of God's people, Israel, the very teachers and keepers of God's word, utters damnable words. We have no king but Caesar. What of words? You shall have no other gods before me. We have no king but Caesar. In these verses, truth is revealed. They weren't just rejecting Jesus, the man. They weren't just rejecting Jesus, the son of God. God's own people were rejecting their own eternal king by rejecting God's own words. Verse 16 says, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And it brings us back to ponder why Jesus had to come. Why Jesus had to die. Why an innocent man had to be condemned in order that the guilty may be set free. Dear beloved friends, church members, visitors, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear. That a holy God created us to know him, to know his great love. Yet we mocked him by our disobedience. We rebelled against him by our claim to authority and dominion over that which was not ours. As a result, we rightly deserve the punishment, the eternal separation and damnation from just and righteous God. And it was a sentence for the highest treason and blasphemy by our rejection of the eternal king. And it would have only been right as the sentence of murder is life for life here on earth. The sentence for treason against an eternal God is eternity in hell. But God had a plan from the very beginning, you see that he would redeem a people for himself to know the depths and height and width and length of his great love. That's his love. And that plan was to send Jesus to be our substitute, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died. On the cross, Jesus shed his own blood for the covering of our sins. And whosoever would repent and believe and trust in him will not be condemned to eternal judgment. But by Jesus' resurrection, live the new and abundant life here on earth. And by his returning, live the eternal life forever with him and all of God's redeemed people forever and ever. So if you're not a Christian here today, there's a purpose why you are here. I want to plead with you to receive his invitation this moment to repent, to believe, and to trust in him with your whole life. No other man has given their lives for you. No other son of God has been delivered over for you. No other king claims you as his own. Do not reject him today. 
talk to any of the pastors at the close of service or talk to anyone sitting next to you. We'd be happy to talk to you more of how you can be a follower of Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, behold your king today. Look upon your king this day and tomorrow. When the sorrows and the sufferings fill your days, when disappointment and discouragement and dissatisfaction and death ravages all around you and robs any reasons for happiness, behold your king. Behold your king. Spurgeon says this, and I'll end with this. If there be one place where our Lord Jesus most fully becomes the joy and the comfort of his people, it is where he plunged deepest into the depths of woe. Come hither, gracious souls, and behold the man in the garden of Gethsemane. Behold his heart so brimming with love that he cannot hold it in, so full of sorrow that it must find a vent. Behold the bloody sweat as it distills from every pore of his body and falls upon the ground. Behold a man as they drive the nails into his hands and his feet. Look up, repenting sinner, and see the sorrowful image of your suffering Lord. Mark him as the ruby drops stand on the throne crown and adorn with priceless gems the diadem of the king of misery. Behold a man when all his bones are out of joint and he's poured out like water and brought into the dust of death. God hath forsaken him and hell encompassed him about. Behold and see, was there ever sorrow like unto his sorrow that is done unto him? All ye that pass by draw near and look upon this spectacle of grief, unique, unparalleled, a wonder to men and angels, a prodigy unmatched. Behold the emperor of woe, who had no equal or rival in his agonies. Gaze upon him, ye mourners, for if there be not consolation in a crucified Christ, there is no joy in earth or heaven. If in the ransom price of his blood there be not hope, ye harps of heaven, there is no joy in you, and the right hand of God shall know no pleasures forevermore. We only have to sit more continually at the cross foot to be less troubled with our doubts and woes. We have but to see his sorrows and our sorrows we shall be ashamed to mention. We have but to gaze into his wounds and heal our own. If we live all right, it must be by the contemplation of his death. If we would rise to dignity, it must be by considering his humiliation and his sorrow. So brothers and sisters, may we never, ever daily forget Jesus, the man. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the eternal King. May we behold him for who he truly is, the sinless, delivered, rejected King. Let's pray. Father, when we look around the world, when we look to ourselves, we are reminded of the hopelessness and the pain and the suffering that this world brings, that we ourselves bring upon ourselves. But Father, when we look upon you, the crucified Christ, there is hope, there is joy, there is promise. Help us to endure by abiding in you and you alone. Father, may we as New Covenant Baptist Church behold him the man, the Son of God, the eternal King, with great hope, with great comfort, with great urgency to share this news to others. We love you and we thank you for this reminder. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.